0: If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 20, we are in a series this summer on the Ten Commandments, and we are hitting the seventh commandment here this morning. As you turn to Exodus 20, the second book in the Bible, I want to say this, in regards to Christians and culture, the clearest contrast today may be that of the Christians in the unusual purity that they keep. Virginity prior to marriage and faithfulness to one spouse in marriage. Early church father, Tertullian, said of the church, One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us but our wives. In the early church, they were saying, we share everything with each other but our spouses That was a contrast then and remains a contrast now. People hoard their stuff for themselves, but share their sexuality with others. And that contrast of Christians in culture being a counterculture only exists, of course, if the Christian sexual ethic remains cherished, valued, and honored. The seventh commandment in verse 14 of Exodus 20 simply says this, you shall not commit adultery. First this morning, I want us to look briefly at marriage, what it's intended to be. Then I want us to look at adultery, lust, then look to Jesus, and then get really practical at the end uh, to send you with some helps. Marriage, firstly, is about God. Let's start there. I want to talk about three ways that marriage is about God. The first is this, marriage is designed by God. The Bible begins in Genesis with a wedding, the wedding of Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends in Revelation with a wedding, the wedding of Jesus Christ and his church. And so because God made marriage, what the Bible tells us about God's design for marriage is critical. God made it. The Bible tells us what he means by it. In Genesis chapter 2, right out of the gates, it says, "...the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while well he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man." It says in verse 24, "...therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So what we see here is God makes them male and female in His image and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's God's design for marriage. In Genesis 2.22, it says God brought her to the man. What's happening here is the first wedding and God is walking the first bride down the aisle. So God's design is leave parents, get married, become one flesh. And so marriage is God's doing. In God's eyes, marriage is His doing where He makes a couple one flesh in this one flesh union that God performs. Jesus comes along and in Mark chapter 10 affirms this when He says, "...the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." God joins husbands and wives together in one flesh. Marriage is God's doing, and that is the foundation of marriage that we should see in the Bible. The second reason why marriage is about God is because marriage is a covenant. We're not used to covenant language very much anymore. We're more used to consumer uh, relationships. See, there's a big difference. In consumer relationships, there's always, there's, there have always been consumer relationships, but, but I really do believe we're making more and more relationships consumer relationships. Let me explain what I mean. A consumer relationship lasts as long as it's the best product at the best price. And if that ends, you're not obligated to stay in that relationship, that consumer relationship. In a consumer relationship, the individual's needs are typically placed above the relationship. Covenantal relationships, on the other hand, are binding, meaning that the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. Huge difference. So our culture get this when it, gets this when it comes to the parent-child relationship. We, we still see that, by and large, as a covenant relationship. So your kids can be really, really difficult, and you still go, Oh, they're my kids. It's this binding covenant they're mine, got to stick it it out, right? The reality is marriage traditionally has always been seen as a covenant relationship as well, but not anymore. It's seen as a consumer relationship. Because it's become a consumer relationship, marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. This idea of self-actualization that That the goal in one's life is self-fulfillment. Meeting the needs of self-fulfillment. And if this person in my life, even my spouse, if they can't give it to me, well, I'll treat it like a consumer relationship. I'll go find it elsewhere. Better price, better products. I don't know. Okay. See, passions and feelings come and go, but covenant is constant. It's this long-term binding commitment. And until there's covenant... You're in a consumer relationship, and that's just really shaky ground. It says in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Also talks about um, leaving parents and cleaving to your wife. Literally, it means to be glued to something, to cleave. Elsewhere in Scripture, the word means to unite to someone through covenant or binding promise or oath. So seen in this light, marriage is a unique covenant relationship because it's between a husband and a wife being glued together as one before God as well as with spouse. In the Bible, there's this great theme of covenant over and over again in different periods of time. These covenants are taking place in the Scriptures and we see that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. So much so that we see God keep His covenant to us, though we're the ones that break it time and time again. And God, instead of holding us accountable, put Himself on the line. Jesus' body was broken on the cross for us. Our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God calls us to be covenant-making Covenant keeping people in our marriages, because marriage is a covenant. The third reason why marriage is about God is because marriage puts the gospel on display. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We we read this in Genesis already, but then Paul adds in: This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. What refers to Christ in the church? A man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. That refers to what? That marriage, husband and a wife, refers to Christ and the church. Here's what this means. Thousands of years before Jesus came, God created marriage between husbands and wives. God created marriage between a man and a woman to be a visible picture to the world of an even greater union to come, Christ and the church. Thousands of years before Jesus came, God made marriage between husbands and wives to be a picture of Christ and the church. Jesus left his Father in heaven to hold fast to his wife. He put his life on the line. He made a covenant with his blood so that as unlovely and unlovable as she was, that's a reference to us, the church, she could become lovely and lovable because of his commitment, because of his sacrificial love. See, your marriage is about so much more than you and your spouse. It's meant to image the gospel. It's a picture of Christ in the church. When you're hanging out with your spice, uh, spice. when things are getting spicy with your spouse, what? Okay. When you're hanging out with your spouse, are you like, this is about so much more than just me and you. We're imaging the gospel here. Like, do you do that? Not not usually, but it's true. God created our marriages to be a picture of an even greater marriage, Jesus and his bride. The church, we always need to remember that. See, the ultimate purpose of our marriages is to put the covenant relationship of Jesus and his church on display. That's how God designed it from the start, and that's why you're married. So if marriage is about God, let's let's move into this. Adultery is about you. To define adultery, let's talk about it this way. Adultery has to do with sexual violations regarding married people. So you don't have to be married to be an adulterer. You, if you sleep with someone who is married, you are an adulterer or known as a wrecker. Right? So this applies to everyone. Not only that, we need to understand that when the Ten Commandments uh, label something, they're kind of going big. But, but what also applies is kind of every, if we want to call it that, lesser sin. So last week we looked at you shall not murder. But it's also saying like it's not a great idea to get into fights. We even talked about the fact that the anger in your heart towards people that's so venomous, it, it's like emotional murder. So it includes that too. and So the same is applying here. We're talking adultery because it's this covenant breaking. It can ruin a family, that kind of stuff. But like fornication, like sleeping with someone when you're not married, all the, all the kind of lesser kind of sexual sins we could talk about, they all fall under this seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. But see, adultery in our in our, in our culture is kind of affirmed if there's like real love there you ever notice that like i read that more than nine out of ten romances in in movies and television the romances you watch on the screen more than nine out of ten of them are couples that aren't married they're either adulterers or singles or whatever and the reason is i read this about uh, uh, some writers and producers talked about this they're like like married couple storylines are just so boring Right. Like, there needs to be action and intrigue. And how do you get that? Well, it's these, this person who's married to this just boring, like, right, just terrible person. And then there's this person that's like the perfect fit for them. And they just need to go be with them. And everybody's watching the film, like, yes, go to them. Right? Like, you just think that, like, you're, 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 you're told to, like, that's the right thing. Like, you're going to, you two are so in love. Like, leave that bag right? like That's the story. That's the story of almost every show and every movie. That's the romance stuff. And as they're like running from their spouse to the arms of another, you're like, oh. The reason is this whole self-actualization thing. What's the highest value? You're not getting great love over there. Go pursue it here. You'll be happier. You'll have more self-fulfillment. You'll have more pleasure it'll be easier, it'll just be natural, like all of that stuff. But really, deep down, like, it's, it's not that there's greater love over there, it's this self-love that drives you to be like, I think it'd be better for me with that person. It's using someone for your own lustful desires, for your self-gratification, which is in fact an act of self-worship. See, the excuse often made for adultery is my spouse wasn't enough. My spouse wasn't satisfying me. My spouse didn't complete me. I'm having trouble with that word today. Spouse didn't complete me. My spouse didn't fulfill me. But see, looking to sex and romance for meaning, hope, and self-identity is it, it, just a recipe for disaster. See, see, to pursue, to, to look For meaning, hope, and self identity used to come from faith in God. It was through this relationship with God that's like, there's my meaning, there's my hope, there's my identity. It's in Him. But see, we've taken God out of the equation in secular culture in general and many times in our lives functionally, and we, we look for the supernatural, the sacred, and the divine and that void we have of it, and we look to some sort of partner to fulfill it. Not just to have a healthy, great, exciting, deep relationship, but for the supernatural, for the divine. And no one can hold up to that weight. Like, no one holds up under that weight except for Jesus. See, it's only when we understand the meaning of marriage rightly that we're properly equipped in our marriages. So let me equip you for your marriages. Here we go. This is the reality of it all. You are so fully and completely loved by Jesus that your marriage won't fall apart when your spouse lets you down because you're so fully and completely loved by Jesus. So when your spouse lets you down, you still have hope, you still have meaning, you still have identity. But not only that, you don't need to receive ultimate fulfillment from your spouse because you've already found it rightly and completely in Jesus Christ. And listen, that person in your life can't give you the divine anyways. They're just going to crumble under that weight you place on them to do it. Nobody survives that. So to commit adultery is to trample on marriage created by God and to trample on His law, the seventh commandment. And in so doing, it's not just an affront on a command of God, it's an affront of God. It's, It's setting one's own agenda above God's agenda. God is saying, this is my way. This is what's best for you. This is the way I've designed it. And you're saying, ah, I like this better. I think this is better. It's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Edmund, that Weasley brother, you know? Right? He, he really, like, betrays his siblings because there's this wicked witch who draws him in with Turkish delight. <laughs> right? And so he goes with her and she gives it to him and it tastes good for a moment, but then quickly leaves him hungry and hollow. It never delivers on its promises. It brings longing and discontent and a hunger that can never be satisfied. And if you keep going back for more in the end, it will kill you. That is adultery. Now, we paint it as, that's where bliss will be. That's where self-fulfillment will be. That's where meaning will be. That's where pleasure will be. That will go well for you. And in an instant, you realize, I just blew up my family. I just caused devastating harm to so many people. I thought the Turkish delight would be delicious. And maybe for a fleeting second, it was but it never delivers on its promises. God designed sex. God designed marriage. He created the context for its flourishing. See, sexual adultery in the scriptures is is really just analogous for spiritual adultery. Over and over again, God is seen as this faithful husband and his bride is the nation of Israel. And later in the New Testament, bride is is the church. Over and over again, they commit adultery. They, They forsake him for another. And he's this faithful husband to this adulterous bride. And the analogy is used because we get it. Like we get the concept of adultery. Married to one, cheating on that one with another. That's idolatry before God. And it's also, of course, adultery when we live it out in our hearts and in our lives. And Jesus, of course, is after our heart. So let's look at lust because it is a deadly poison. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. So he's quoting the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like Jesus is so after your heart. Last week, the command was, you shall not murder. And then it says, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but if you have anger towards somebody, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus is after your heart. You, you may have spared yourself from the physical action, may have, may not have. But that anger, it's like murder. That lust is like adultery. Jesus sees the heart and what you're chasing He gets it. He sees it. Like all of the Ten Commandments, when it comes to the seventh, Jesus doesn't loosen it. He deepens it. He moves from the external to the internal. He moves to the heart. And Jesus states these verses from the perspective of a man and talks about looking. But I need to say this. That doesn't get women off the hook here. We are all guilty of lust. But it's no coincidence that Jesus is saying when a man looks at a woman with lustful intent as as though he's committed adultery with her in his heart. See, but here's the thing. To look isn't to lust. God has created many beautiful things, mountains and rivers and women and George Clooney, right? (laughs) Just beautiful, beautiful things, beautiful creations. To look and to say, that's a handsome fella." Right that's a that's a beautiful girl like to look is not to lust okay we have eyes they see things so what's lust to lust is to look at someone and imagine the sexual possibilities to undress them with your eyes to picture them sexually or yourself with them sexually. It's looking that lingers and ogles and objectifies. It's looking that leads to getting turned on sexually. All of these things are what we're talking about when we talk about lust. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus talks about a man looking and having lustful intent in his heart and that being adultery because generally it's been said, uh, there's a psychologist who said, generally, men see life, women feel life. It's a generality, but it is a helpful generality. Men see life, women feel life. So we're we're wired differently. So what gets a lot of couples into a lot of trouble is this sense of, a. so let's use this example, a guy is struggling, his eyes are seeing things, he's looking at things he shouldn't, that kind of stuff. And the wife is saying, I cannot believe that you would do that. I could never conceive of doing something like that. You are such a pervert. Because she's expecting that his brain is wired like her brain, and she could never conceive of doing the stuff that he is doing. Now listen, he's responsible for every action of his, for every thought of his, and everything that his eyes see, everything he thinks, and everything he does. But men see life, and women feel life. Here's here's the deal. God creates in the garden, and, and Adam's been hanging around naming pairs of animals and is getting, like, more and more depressed in the process, and then God creates a woman and brings her to the man, and it's like, boom, he's stunned by her. Doesn't hurt that she's naked, and so he literally just looks at her, and he starts, like, reciting poetry, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is woman, this is... Like, he's just like, he's just like he saw her, and he, like he's poetic. Like, that's what happens. For her, here's how I... It, this is extra biblical. This is just my interpretation here. But my perspective is this. He's also naked, so she shows up, looks at him, and is like, eh. right? But then he recites her this poem, and she's like, that is so sweet. (laughs) That is so sweet that you would say that to me? As he's picking beautiful creation pre-fall flowers and giving her, like, the most beautiful bouquet ever? He gave her the bouquet, and he told her poetry, and she loves him. He saw her, and he loves her, right? Like, that's so that's what's going on. So when Jesus is like, who, when he looks with lustful intent, he's committed adultery in his heart. So that's going to that's work itself out in, in different ways for, for men and women, and, and, and not in these strict ways. There's this blend in all of this going on. Guys will get drawn in emotionally. Women will get drawn in with what they see. Right? All of those things happen, but we just there's this general lens and It leads every single person to these forms of lust. For men and women, but especially men, online pornography has been a killer. I say especially men because it's like, you know, 90% of men or whatever, like pornography is a temptation and the other 10% are liars. And then um, for women, it is like 30-some percent kind of thing. So it's a problem for all, right? It's a temptation for many, but it's a massive temptation for men because they see life. They're drawn by the eye. So Denny Burke, writing about the, the masculine experience here, but it applies more broadly than that. He's a pastor and a professor, and he wrote this, I am not being hyperbolic when I call porn use a civilizational calamity. The sexual revolution promised us more sex and more pleasure. It has actually delivered to us a generation of men who think of women as objects to be used and abused for their sexual pleasure. It has not given us men who know what virtue and honor are. It doesn't teach men to pursue their joy and self-sacrificially loving and being sexually faithful to one woman for life. It teaches young men to use women for sex and then to discard them when they become unwilling or uninterested. This means that it has given us a generation of young men completely unprepared for marriage and for fatherhood. He goes on to write, It's not merely that so many young men are unprepared for marriage. They are unprepared for dinner and a movie. He goes on to call porn use the pastoral challenge of our generation. It's certainly one of them. Because it's so systemic... It's affecting so many people in the church and it crushes your soul. And he doesn't know of any other problem that has done more to subvert manhood and marriage than porn use. And we call it liberation. It's killing us. Some of the pastors we were chatting earlier, um, and whenever we perform a, a wedding ceremony, we Uh, we do a a number of premarital counseling sessions with the couple. and Of course, at some point in that, we we ask the question, is there a history of looking at porn or is that a present issue and does your partner know and that kind of stuff? And almost every time, the guy says yes. And the times when he says, no, no, it's not an issue, we, we think, liar, it's that prevalent. And usually the guy who says, no, 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 it's not an issue, the next week comes back and says, well, actually, we talked about it, and yeah, it has been a problem. Before. It's that pervasive. And Jesus is saying, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart, and we're addicted to adultery and mass. And Jesus wants your heart. If you're looking at porn, if you're fantasizing about someone you saw, if you're playing up sexual scenarios, you may not have physically committed adultery with someone, but your heart has. So what do we do? Well, Jesus is our purity and our purifier. What person hasn't looked at someone other than their spouse and lusted? What person hasn't thought my life would be better if I was married to that person rather than my spouse and lusted? What single hasn't been tempted to idolize a longed-for marriage partner rather than trusting God for the sufficiency of his love and lusted? And if our faithfulness in marriage and singleness is weak, what hope do we have of standing pure in our faithfulness to Jesus? These are despairing thoughts. Who's capable of such purity? Well, Jesus was and is truly and completely pure. He kept the seventh commandment against adultery for us. His holiness is the ground of our justification in the area of purity. His holiness is the grounds for justification for us in the area of purity. Not that we've white-knuckled it for a long time. Not that His holiness is our justification when it comes to purity. Thank you, Jesus. See, when God instructed Israel to make the tabernacle, one of the instructions was to make a basin where the priests could wash their hands and feet before entering the tent of meeting, this kind of inner sanctum. And the reason was it symbolized the need to be pure before entering into God's presence, and that's absolutely true. You need to be pure before you can enter the presence of God. But the water, I couldn't purify from sin. It was a symbol. A symbol of what? It represented the purifying, cleansing flood of Jesus' holiness. It's His holiness that satisfies God's demands for purity. The holiness of Jesus is the basin in which we can wash in order, in order to be pure in our thoughts and in our actions. See, Jesus transforms the seventh commandment by saying He ups it by saying, even if you look with lust, you've committed adultery. It forces us to run to Him for transformation. We need Him to be cleansed, to be purified, and it is entrusting in the pure perfection of Jesus and the power of His pure Spirit that we have hope. See, the priests would wash their hands and feet as a symbol of ritual purity. The Christian gets baptized, gets plunged into the water as an image of a crooked, sinful, lustful, adulterous heart going under the water and coming up cleansed. That's Jesus. That's why he says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. Listen to the contrast. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We're a mess. But listen to the promise. In Christ, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, His purity, and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, we can be made pure, filthy as we are. Let's close swiftly. I promised the first service, we ran out of time, hearing missions reports and stuff. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, so amazing that I I promised that I would blog this more extensively because I'm just going to hit on some of these practical things. So I I promised that I would expand on this more this coming week. So I'm looking forward to Pastor Tyson writing that for us. Okay. To take drastic measures with surgical precision. I'm using that language because I'm following what Jesus just said about looking with lust and committing adultery. He goes on to say in Matthew 5.29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, there were literally Christians in church history that cut off hands and eyes because they thought really literally. These type A individuals went nuts with this and they weren't interpreting right, okay? This is hyperbole. Right? It's, it's dramatic effect. And yet, what's the effect meant to be? That sin must be taken seriously. In Jesus' teaching, sin leads to hell. So we are to deal drastically with sin. We're to hate it, crush it, and root it out. And the reason I put, say, put surgical precision is because we shouldn't just be like, oh yeah, I should get accountability. Oh yeah, maybe I should do no, like With surgical precision, Chase this down. I'm going to give you really quick, really quick um, practical steps here. About the eyes. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What are you looking at? Are you filling it with light or are you filling it with darkness? The eye is the doorway to the mind. What are you looking at? You know, we really, uh, in Every Man's Battle, a popular book from a number of years ago, it, 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 it told people they should learn to bounce their eyes, meaning that they, their eyes come across something that could very quickly lead to temptation, lead to lust, that literally look Whoa! And look over somewhere else. It applies to watching a show or a movie, and you're watching this series that keeps having pornography in it. Essentially, just shut it off. Turn it off. Don't let your eye see that anymore. Turn off the TV. Turn off the channel. Close the web page. Look away. Right? You bounce your eyes. Dwell on the gospel. I know that that sounds like a real pastory thing to say, but dwell on the gospel. In Philippians four eight, it says, "Whatever's true." Whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Like you getting into the word in the morning and praying is not just some like, devotional checklist thing. It sets your, the, the, it sets the, your heart into motion for the day. What will you think about? Dwell on the word. Dwell, bring it Go to God in prayer. Memorize scripture that you can recall to mind at moments of temptation. Create and maintain accountability. I've been meeting with the same accountability partners for a few years now. We meet every couple of weeks. Two guys in our church. Um, I'm the pastor. That obviously is not a struggle for me, but I'm just there to help them, bless them. <laughs> no, but we know. And look, look, the kind of accountability you need. It took me years to find the right accountability. It's a part of my story. When I actually really wanted to get grow in this area. I, for years, was chasing accountability, and I kept finding guys that wanted to let me off the hook. You know why? Because then they could be let off the hook. And I'd share something with them and be like, oh, I know it's so hard and our wives don't get it. It's just the way that it's so hard not to. Right? It's like, ah, man, I'm not just going to be praying for you. That's tough, but you know, it's, it's hard, right? And it's just like, what? No, ask a question. Like, ask a straight-up question and hold me accountable, right? That kind of stuff. We need to do that for each other. We need to truly create and maintain accountability, We need to stay away from temptation. King David, he was supposed to be off at war doing kingly things. Instead, he usurped that responsibility, was hanging out on the roof of his house. He sees a naked woman. He wants her. Essentially, at best, he committed adultery. At worst, he committed rape, had her husband murdered, and on and on it goes. But it started way back when he put himself in a place of temptation. He was bored. He was alone. He was where he shouldn't be, just hanging out, and it got him into trouble. Sometimes we need to stay away from temptation, but sometimes it just is like thrust upon us and we weren't expecting it. So we also need to run from temptation. There's a story in Genesis about Joseph, the Joseph in the technicolor dream coat, Joseph. And he's, he's working in this rich man's house, and the rich man's wife is really interested in Joseph. And she, try, she corners him and tries to seduce him. She grabs onto him, and he just bolts, and she's holding onto his robe. He just ran naked, because he knew in that moment, I have to get out of here. I have to flee sin. So run from temptation. I expect to be at the beach this summer and see some of you just sprinting down the <laughs> beach, like head up, just, and I'll get it, and I'll know, and I'll be like, bless you, that was good. Live sacrificially rather than self-indulgently. The reality is that we are to be pursuing Christ-likeness in every way. So serve people, live in Christ-like ways. And as you do that in all sorts of ways, you're pursuing godliness in one area of life, promotes godliness in other areas of life. So pursue Christ. Here's one. Create a great sex life in your marriage. The people who had fallen asleep just woke up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm quoting Scripture here. This isn't me. This is the Scriptures. Don't be more righteous and holy than the Bible, okay? There's a name for that. I won't use it here. But that's not us. Listen to what the Scriptures say about a good sex life. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. For married people, (laughs) but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So unless you and your spouse have this agreement, We're devoting ourselves to prayer for this three weeks. That's why we're not... Unless that's the reason, you're depriving one another in an unbiblical way. But then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Meaning pursue a great sex life in your marriage as a means to not give in to temptation elsewhere. Have a safe, fun, exciting, enjoyable sex life. That's my instruction to you. Now be blessed, okay? Okay. It's for your good. It's for your spouse's good. But when when I say that, here's what a lot of you are thinking: I'm gonna recite this scripture to my spouse later, right? Here's the problem with that. That's for self-gratification. You're already chasing lust, chasing adultery. You want satisfaction for yourself. Here's the thing: let's go back to Ephesians 5. Our marriages image Christ and the church, Christ and the church. So how does a husband image Christ? The husband images Christ by laying his life down, dying for her, taking up his cross, serving her sacrificially, that kind of stuff. So if all day, husbands, you're just not listening to your wife, she's trying to connect with you, she's trying to share her heart with you, and you're like gazing off to some other place, and then evening hits, and you're like, hey, baby, what's going on? Like, it's just, that's not, that doesn't make sense. You haven't been investing in her in such a way that she feels cherished and wants to pursue you. So husbands, like Christ, pursue your wife in selflessness. And the way that the wife models Christ in the marriage is through a submission that, yes, is to the husband, but even more so to Christ who submitted himself to the will of the Father. So you, too, get to image Christ in your marriage. Create a great sex life in your marriage for your good. Finally, see church as family. Family. This is what Paul said to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Treat an older man like a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What the apostle Paul is saying to the young pastor is that outside of marriage our interactions with others should look like brother-sister, parent relationships. So this is this is to the Christian family. And so if there are there is a guy that kind of objectifies a a young woman in the church or whatever, you're to go up to him and be like, whoa, whoa, bro, that's my sister. Okay? That's my mom, man. Okay? (laughs) We're family, brother, sister, siblings. The last thing I would say really practically is repent. Like you can hear this and feel a little bit of conviction and then go to lunch. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is conviction, seared heart, I got to do something with that, and that's bring it to the foot of the cross and repent of it. When God confronts you with the guilt of your sexual sin, you have a choice. If you keep hiding your sin, you can be sure that it will destroy you in the end. But if you repent of your sexual sin, of your adultery, fornication, lust, God will have mercy. He extended grace to King David, He extended grace to Mary Magdalene. And like the adulterous woman that the mob brought to Jesus to stone her, Jesus said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And he extended grace to her. And as she left, he said, "Now go sin no more. Don't keep doing that. In the Old Testament, adulterers were stoned to death. That seems crazy to us. That seems insane. But this is why they did it. It was was for pursuing purity in such a way that said that person's soul is lost. So let's show everyone physically what's already happened to them spiritually. What a grace that God gives us time. It's gracious of God to give us time, time to cut off a hand, gouge out an eye. Time to repent and turn our dysfunctional, sex, dysfunctional sexuality over to God to heal and mend and purify. And the only reason that it's possible for us is because Jesus took the flogging for us. He was stoned. He took the death we deserved for our lawbreaking so that we could repent and believe the gospel. Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote, The soul cannot be lovely to God until it has Christ's image stamped upon it. Is Christ's image stamped upon your heart? If, you're, if it isn't, I worry that your soul is lost. If it is, I would plead that you would continue to live a life of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, bring it to him, seek purity, he will purify you. And if you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus, he embraces you, wants to call you home. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your perfection in purity. You lived the ultimate human life and you were single and chaste. And thank you that you died for unpure people, impure people. Thank you. We need that grace. We are adulterers. And we repent. And we ask you to bring life transformation as we throw ourselves upon your grace, as we fall at the foot of the cross and plead with your, for your mercy, knowing that you died for sinners like us. We say thank you, Jesus. I pray for our marriages. I pray for singles here. Oh, Lord, would you purify us? Would you give us vibrant, flourishing, healthy marriages as a witness, a gospel witness to this world?